You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey friend, you might not want to listen to this episode at night or when you're by yourself in a dark place. Just a little warning. Okay, see you in there. Bye. Welcome, 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 friend. I'm TK, your tour guide to the past, and you are listening to For the Love of History, the podcast where we talk about world history, women's history, and weird history. Like most millennial women, I am a true crime lover. Give me a Law & Order SVU marathon any day of the week, and I will watch it all. Give me a true crime podcast on my way to work, and I will be a happy camper. New serial killer documentary on Netflix. I know what I'm doing this weekend. Sitting my butt on the couch and watching it all. I am almost as obsessed with true crime as I am with history. So I wanted to find a way to incorporate my two loves into one podcast episode. So I put my thinking cap on and I went to my favorite place, Google. And out popped the history of serial killer profiling. And you, my dear friend, thankfully voted for it. And now we're here. Our time machine doesn't have to go too far today, but you better grab a snack just in case, and let's get to it. The U.S. has had 3,204 serial killers in its short history. That is approximately 19 times more serial killers than the next country on the list, which is England. 1,172 serial killers were caught in the U.S. during the 20th century alone. At any point, there is between 20 and 25 active serial killers in the United States. That's not funny. That is not funny. I am just uncomfortable, and I laugh when I'm uncomfortable, because that is a way more than I thought. <laughs> so it's no wonder people are a little bit obsessed with serial killers. In this episode, we really won't be talking about one specific serial killer, or really serial killers in general, because they've had enough attention. We are going to focus on the history and the how of catching these murderers. If you Google worlds for serial killer you get two hits. Or two people, rather. Several sources I found say a pair of women from 331 BC in ancient Rome committed the first serial murders via poisoning a bunch of men. Other sources say a nobleman who fought alongside Joan of freaking Arc named Gilles de Rais... <laughs> Starting off strong this episode. Gilles de Rais... <laughs> was accused of killing hundreds of young boys in the 1400s, which is not funny. I should not be laughing. I'm laughing at the name, not the murdering part. Okay, you you understand me. You understand. Serial killing is not unique to the U.S., nor is it a new phenomenon, obviously, since we've got things going on in ancient Rome. But with well over 50% of the world's serial killers residing and active in the U.S., we're going to mainly focus our attention there. 80% of known American serial killers operated between 1970 and 1999, making those three-ish decades some of the most dangerous in history for regular regular people. Because of this, policing needed to change. 
But before we get too ahead of ourselves, let's go back a bit to one of, if not the most infamous serial killers of all time, Jack the Ripper. Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. Their names are much more important than that nameless bag of squashed assholes that has gained so much fame. Those innocent women were the victims of Jack the Ripper. The police were at a loss. With no leads and basically no evidence to go on, they needed help, and in their desperation, they called on London physicians George Phillips and Thomas Bond. The doctors use autopsy results and crime scene evidence in the fall of 1888 to make rudimentary but informed predictions about the murderer's personality, behavioral characteristics, and lifestyle in an attempt to create a profile to narrow down the suspect pool. They concluded that all five murders, no doubt, were committed by the same hand with no medical training or knowledge of anatomy, despite the killer's extensive cutting and mutilation of his victims. But this profile was a big deal, because it was the exact opposite of what law enforcement authorities had previously thought, that the murderer was either a physician or had medical training, because he had removed internal organs from some of his victims. Many law enforcement authorities at the time believed that the Ripper was, in fact, a surgeon. So that's where they were conducting their investigations. We may never know if the doctors were correct, because this crime remains unsolved. But this intervention by people outside of law enforcement turned into an entire science of its own. The term serial killer wouldn't be put into formal use until the 1970s, but it wasn't an entirely unknown word. The German term, and forgive my German, Serienmörder, which translates to serial murderer, was used by Ernest Gnant, who was the director of the Berlin police. He used this phrase when describing Peter Curtin, also known as the Monster of Dusseldorf, in 1930. Various doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists would help the police on multiple or single murder cases from time to time, but there was no formal unit or relationship really until much later on. But even though criminal profiling wasn't officially part of the police and it really wasn't a thing in the first place, human beings are a morbid, curious bunch and psychoanalysis of the criminal mind found its way into the popular culture of the time. Detectives like Sherlock Holmes, Edgar Allan Poe's amateur detective C. August Dupin, who used reverse psychology to solve mysteries, became incredibly popular forms of literature. All sorts of stories and different forms of media popped up about murderers and serial killers. People were hooked and disgusted and intrigued by the minds of killers and the people who hunted them. Why were there so many serial killers in the 70s, 80s, and 90s? Where and, and where did they all go? Why was this phenomenon really only happening in the States? Law enforcement, psychologists, anthropologists, and all sorts of other ologists have been trying to figure this out since we had time to step back and think, holy shit, what just happened? Why do we have so many murderers right now? 
Many, like criminal justice expert Peter Vorsky, believe that the serial killers of the 70s, 80s, and 90s became serial killers because of their exposure to war and violence as children of the world wars. Fathers and mothers came back home with PTSD, which wouldn't be even recognized as a thing until the 80s, and raised a generation of serial killers, or potential serial killers, just waiting to emerge. Others believe this is an oversimplification, and there is more at play than just being raised in violent homes. Some think that there is a serial killer gene that people are born with, and it can either be switched on or switched off. But that, dear one, is the eternal struggle of nature versus nurture and is one of the most hotly debated topics among serial killer experts and really anybody who studies psychology at all. But regardless of how it happens, it indeed happened, and we needed to change the way police did their policing, because the way criminals were criminaling also changed. Psychologists had been weighing in on criminal investigations for decades, In 1943, the Office of Strategic Services requested psychiatrist Dr. Walter C. Langer to develop a profile on friggin' Hitler. Dr. Walter studied his speeches, Hitler's book Mein Kampf, and interviews of people who knew Hitler, and began to piece together a profile, which turned out to be pretty friggin' accurate. So accurate that the doctor even predicted that if Germany lost, Hitler would commit suicide, which he totally did. In 1956, Dr. James Brussel studied crime scene photographs and the mail from the New York Mad Bomber and developed a detailed description of the offender. He suggested that the bomber would be a heavy man, middle-aged, foreign-born, Roman Catholic, and single, living with a brother or sister. (gasps) And this, it sounds bananas, doesn't it? It sounds bananas. The guy, okay, but here's the most banana part. Dr. James was like, when you find this guy, chances are he'll be wearing a double-breasted suit, buttoned. He even specified if it would be buttoned or unbuttoned. And guess wiggly what? Brussels' profile turned out to be so freaking spot on down to the clothing prediction. It was bananas. Dr. Brussels also aided the New York Police Department from 1957 to 1972 in other investigations. And he also helped other agencies as well. His work resulted in the arrest of Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler, and many other criminals. Through all of these very formal yet informal consultations, it was obvious that law enforcement needed profilers. And in 1972, the FBI established the Behavioral Science Unit. And thus, our main story begins, my friend. Robert Ressler was one of the first BSU agents and is credited with coining the word serial killer. Around the same time, another agent named John Douglas joined the BSU. And this is very much a side note. Anytime I say BSU, I think of my university because I went to BSU, Boise State University. So it makes me giggle, which is very inappropriate. But as you know, I'm a nervous laughter, laugher. -er. Uh, When I get uncomfortable, I laugh. So there we go. I digress. Robert and John were kind of starting off from scratchy scratch. 
they had training and all that, but they were totally overwhelmed by the sheer number of serial killers and the lack of communication and, like, system of catching them. During this time, the FBI and local cops and other state police agencies didn't really talk to one another. They were all like hush-hush about their cases and they wanted to be the ones to solve them and they were just, there just wasn't a good way to communicate. I mean, people were using fax machines for goodness sakes. Car phones were just now becoming a thing. So Robert and John were like, okay, we got all of these serial killers just sitting there in jail. Why don't we like go talk to them or something? And they told the FBI and the FBI was like, dope, go for it. Uh, so they did. With the help of Dr. Ann Burgess, the three crime fighters came up with an interview protocol and a bunch of questions to ask. They mainly focused on the motive and the preparation for the murderers, along with details of the crimes and how the criminals disposed of evidence. It sounds bananas, right? Why? Why? Would serial killers agree to do this? Why would they divulge their murder secrets? But oh, I'm not a serial killer, so I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But you know what, my friend? They did. And I'm glad they did. And by 1979, Robbie and Johnny went and interviewed 36 serial killers. They got a ton of information that created a more clear way to profile, identify, and capture other serial killers. Their research also helped in establishing the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, or VICAP, in 1985, which maintains the largest investigative respiratory of major violent crimes. Respiratory? Nope. Repository for major violent crime cases in the United States. But this is by no means a cure-all for serial killing crimes. Profiling or criminal investigative analysis, as it's called by the FBI, is simply the investigation of a crime with the hope of identifying the responsible party, a.k.a. the perpetrator, based on crime scene analysis, forensic psychology, and behavioral science. It is not a serial killer identifier machine. A criminal profile may include things like Sex, age, ethnic background, height, weight, or personality stuff like psychological diseases, self-esteem, remorse, or guilt, and aggressiveness, whether the murderer is organized or disorganized, things like that. And it's not only used in profiling serial killers. It's also used in homicide, sexual assault, extortion, kidnapping, obscene telephone calls, fires, and many more kinds of crimes that I just don't even know about. Criminal profiling, criminal profiling is really just an effective tool to help law enforcement agencies to enforce the law more effectively. It's not a magic crystal ball that shows you exactly who the criminal is. I could watch Law & Order, SVU, Criminal Minds, Mindhunter, all of those shows until my butt becomes one with the couch and my bladder is the Hoover Dam because I don't want to pause the show to get up and pee. You could say that I'm obsessed. But the TV shows are not reality. And John Douglas himself has harshly criticized many of the pop culture depictions of his life's work. 
In an interview with Vulture magazine, he called criminal minds procedurally all wrong. He also claimed that many movies and TV shows about serial killers make them so diabolical and unreal. The whole thing is just wrong, he says. These shows also make it seem like everyone agrees on how criminal profiling works and if it really works in the first place. Many profiles are criticized for being too vague or too specific, thus narrowing the suspect pool to a ridiculous size. The method of criminal profiling has not really undergone many changes over the past 50-ish years, and criminal profilers themselves often disagree on how it should be done, and with criminal profilers, psychologists, psychiatrists, law enforcement, going so far as disagreeing on what the science should be called in the first place. The FBI calls its form of profiling criminal investigative analysis. One prominent forensic psychologist calls his work investigative psychology, and another calls his work crime action profiling. And just like with many other forms of psychology, the way to do it is disputed. In addition, the history of criminal profiling is filled with mistakes, which has led to mistrust in its effectiveness. Many profiles have led to investigators focusing on innocent people while failing to investigate other leads or ignoring the guilty party altogether. Criminal profiling has also occasionally evolved into racial profiling, with over-policing of black communities and the proliferation of stop-and-frisk policies that have understandably caused public outrage. It's definitely not a perfect system. And it's not some magical TV show serial killer seek and destroy tool. It is, in fact, just a tool. It is important to remember that profiling is not meant to solve cases on its own. It's most effective when used with other stuff like crime scene evidence, forensic thingies, and solid detective work. It can be a valuable tool, but it must be used wisely. Well, dear one, we have come to our final thought, and all through this research, I have been thinking, where the heck have all the serial killers gone? I mean, I am certainly, certainly not complaining, but I'm just a little curious cat, and I need to know everything, which means you need to know too. So here goes. One popular theory is that forensic evidence and genetic tracing has gotten so good that it's become easier to snatch killers before they get to the point of serial killing. Other people hypothesize that serial killing has just gotten to be too dangerous for the killers, which is so ironic. Policing and the public are now aware of what a serial killer is, so folks steer clear of picking up hitchhikers and jogging alone, and police are more on watch for these kind of serial killing behaviors, and other people are more aware of the early signs of a possible serial killer. There's another theory that says longer prison sentences are also deterring them, and society is also really just safer and easy, quote-unquote, easy targets are harder to find. 
So we're not 100% sure the reason for the crazy banana dramatic drop from the hundreds of active serial killers in the 70s, 80s, and 90s to now only having about 20 to 25, which is still a terrifying number. But boy, howdy, am I glad that they are few and far between now. That is all she wrote today, dear one. Just so you know, I recorded this in the fully lit house because I was scaring myself with research for this topic. All the lights were on. My cats were in the room. I made sure to record when my husband was home because this episode kind of freaked me out, man. Super freaked me out. I absolutely do not know how true crime podcast people do this all the time. I would just be a nervous purvis constantly. So I hope that you're not too freaked out and you find comfort in the fact that, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of serial killers right now. So bright side. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, consider leaving a rating or review. My goal is to get 100 ratings and reviews by the end of the season. We're in the 70s now with the reviews, uh, and we've got about seven weeks left in the season. So I think we can make it. I know we can make it. If you've already left a review, um, send your favorite episode to your dentist or your boss or your best friend uh, or somebody in the elevator so you can avoid small talk about the weather. Word of mouth is the number one way people hear about podcasts. It really, really helps out. Also, quick reminder, new For the Love of History merch is out and ready to adorn your cute body. And one final update today, (laughs) Sleepy History will launch in July. I've gotten everything worked out. I'm really, really excited. So yeah, I hope hope you enjoy that when that comes out. But that is enough talking for me today. I will see you next week when we talk about Japan's High Society Red Light District. So until then, take good care of yourself, drink your water, and do something that makes you happy. Okay? Okay. Bye. Why is there a metronome right now? Okay. (laughs) Okay.